We now take you to a live Bible study at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. We're glad, I'm glad to be back. We welcome all of you and our KFUO listening audience as we begin our study of 1 Corinthians. So today we're going to do a little background work about this book. And we're going to start with Corinth. Corinth was a bad place. A very bad place. It's on an isthmus. And there's water on both sides. It's not exactly on the coast, but there were two coastal cities. One you've heard of is Kenkria. The other one, one faces Italy, one faces Asia. But the thing about this isthmus was it was narrow enough that they built platforms and would push the ships across the isthmus so they didn't have to sail around. Okay. So, not huge ships, but small ships, they would just push across the isthmus. So that made Corinth a sailor's town. Okay? I won't go into any more detail on that. But there's a specific Greek word. Corinthodzomai. It means act like a Corinthian. And it's usually translated fornicator. So that's Corinth. Okay? Within Corinth, there were all kinds of religions. All kinds of false gods. Aphrodite, Apollo, Athena, Zeus, Poseidon, and others, and each had their own following. So it became a major city. It has somewhat of a checkered past. The Romans destroyed it in 146 BC. Okay? was destroyed by the Romans because Corinth helped lead a revolt against Rome. But in 44 BC, Julius Caesar rebuilt the city. And it became a predominant city connecting north and south Greece, plus being on this isthmus with two separate uh, uh, bodies of water. He, uh, it became a very prominent city, a city of over 100,000 people, which would have been huge in those days. Absolutely huge. So Corinth had its problems to start with. Okay? Had its problems to start with. 
There are also Epicureans there. Epicureans believed and encouraged in pleasure and tranquility and to avoid pain and suffering at all cost. And you can see how that might fly full in the face of Paul's teaching that you had to suffer for Christ. There were also Stoics there who achieved freedom. They believed in achieving freedom and autonomy by living a rational life. They believed in total self-sufficiency, which would also be a problem for Paul teaching it all depends on God. So it was a very tough climate, a very tough climate to preach the Christian gospel. Now, we're not going to start right off with Corinthians. I want you to turn to Acts. Acts chapter 18, because we have the account of when Paul started the congregation at Corinth. And we need to read through that because there are some important things there. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. All right, this begins to give us some historical perspective of exactly the timing of this. We don't always have that in the Bible. But this chapter will give us two big dates that we know for certain, because Roman records specifically state that Claudius exiled the Jews in 49 AD. Now, why did he exile the Jews from Rome? He did because the Jews were constantly fighting amongst themselves. The Jews were constantly fighting against the Jews who had converted to Christianity. And then there were the Gentiles that uh, were converted to Christianity. So Jews, Jewish converts, Gentile converts, and they all fought. And Claudius got tired of it, so he just got rid of the Jews. He expelled many Jews from Rome in um, 49. Claudius was the, the emperor from 51, uh, 41 to 54, so for 13 years. So in 49, he exiled the Jews. And that is exactly what's being referred to here, so we know the time frame here. Not that this was 49, this was probably after that, but they had been exiled in 49. Paul went to see them, 
and because he was the same the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Okay? So they had that in common. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We're just going to keep reading. We're not going to analyze all this. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, he had left them up north. Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Thaddeus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, that name will come up in 1 Corinthians. The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Another time reference. Another time reference. Now here's the big time reference. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Proconsul meant that Corinth was now a major part of the Roman Empire because they had a proconsul. Proconsul, okay, uh, made it, they made it, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal the old seas Sosthenes, that name will come up, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio had paid no attention to any of this. Now, the key figure here is Gallio, because through research and archaeology, They have found a street in Corinth with a little inscription. It says, Gallio paid for this street, 51 A.D. Basically, this is the basis for the dating of the whole of Acts. 
because we know it specifically. So we figure that Paul was probably in Corinth those 18 months, sometime between 50 A.D., after uh, the Jews were expelled from Rome, to about 52, 50 to 52 A.D. Some of the most certain dates we have in the New Testament. Then he continues to give us some time references because he winds up in Ephesus and he tells us he spent three years in Ephesus. So we know that when he ended his journey and went back to Jerusalem, he was about 56 A.D. Okay. So um, we're very fortunate to have those kinds of dates. Now let's talk about what happened. What happened that he wrote Corinthians? He wrote to the Corinthians when he was in Ephesus. Remember I told you he left Corinth, went around the horn, and stayed in Ephesus three years. He wrote the book of Corinthians, probably 1st and 2nd Corinthians, from Ephesus. He wrote um, to them because they were having problems. We think he wrote the letter about 55 A.D. Last year, he was in Ephesus. Now, why did he write it? We have two reasons we think that he wrote this, and they're both in the text of 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Verse 11. And it simply says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. We know that Chloe was probably a, a Christian at Corinth. But who Chloe's people are exactly, we don't know. Relatives, friends, but we do know this. These people took a trip from Corinth to Ephesus to report to Paul what was going on. And that's no small chore in the ancient world. So they went to Paul, and the greatest complaint they had was there were divisions in the church. We'll get to that. The other reason, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1. 
Evidently, Chloe's people reported about the divisions, but they also brought something else. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. In other words, they wrote asking Paul questions. That's where we get kind of the last part of the book. And they would have been asking questions about marriage, about food offered to idols, and a range of other things that he would answer. And we know he's answering them because each time he answers a new question, there's a little phrase that says, now about, and he tells what he's answering. Now about. And we'll see that phrase as we move after chapter 7. Okay? After chapter 7. So he wrote this about 55 AD in response to Chloe's people who came and complained about divisions and this letter. This letter. The book is well attested to that Paul wrote it. Very early, the early church fathers are quoting this as Paul's writing. So there's no debate that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. That's, that's established, and you, unless you're really some kind of nutcase that's trying to disprove the whole Bible. But it's well accepted. All right. Um, Let's talk about the major theme of the book. You remember when we studied Romans? The theme verse of Romans was chapter uh, 1, 16 and 17. You don't have to look it up. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, he puts out the theme of the book and then quotes an Old Testament passage to confirm it. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, we believe that this is the theme verse. And he follows the same exact pattern he did in Romans. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he quotes the Old Testament. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So we believe very much this is the theme verse. A real theme in 1 Corinthians is unity in Christ. 
unity in Christ, everyone having a Christ-centered faith that is active in love. We know that in Corinth there was a lot of boasting, strife, jealousy, disorder, because there was a certain group that were putting down what they believed were those that had fewer gifts or less advantages. In other words, they kind of made it up as they went. What they thought right, they did. And that is just what we're living in today. In the postmodern world, what many, many people, many, many people deny any absolute authority. It's what I think and what I feel. Okay? What I think, what I feel. You know, what goes around comes around. Uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under heaven. The thoughts that we think are unique today to us and our culture are not. They've been around a long time. But this attitude that it doesn't matter what you think, it's what I think and I feel that matters is a real problem today. Just like it probably was then. Because there were those in the Corinthian congregation making it up on their own. I think it should be this way. And we'll see some of that as we go through the book. But definitely the theme for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now the emphasis there is on the word of the cross. Because Paul is drawing a contrast between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Now, I'm sure some of you have heard those terms, some of you may not. The emphasis in the theology of the cross is, the cross of Jesus Christ is formative for everything and for our Christian lives in this world. Because it is specifically stated that Jesus Christ suffered in this world. And that his people who believe in him are called upon to suffer in this world, in following him. That's the theology of the cross. The theology of glory goes a different direction. It focuses only on the resurrection 
no suffering. And for a Christian now, you already have heaven. So act like you're living in heaven. Well, that works well. Okay. And so when you preach the theology of glory to people, and then something bad happens in their life, what do they doubt? That I'm a Christian. If I was really a Christian, I wouldn't suffer. Everything would be going my way. That's what the theology of glory does. The whole theology, well, I'm God's kid, so I get everything I want. Okay? But when they don't, then they doubt their faith. The theology of the cross is reality. Raise your hand if you've never suffered. That's life. That's life as a Christian in this world. And so he is emphasizing here, we're going, the root of everything is the word of the cross, not the word of glory. See, the, the cross always comes before the glory. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did Peter want to do? Let's stay. This is great. God's here, the voice from heaven. Let's stay. And Jesus wouldn't allow it. Because the cross comes before the glory. He had to go to the cross before there would be that final glory. So this is an important phrase the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, some things about Corinth. Let me pause there. Questions at this point? Yes, bud. Sosthenes. He got beat up. Yeah. Well, that's the first one that he's now with Paul. Correct. He went with Paul. He got beat up. Sosthenes. What happened to Sosthenes? Sosthenes got beat up in Corinth, but still went with Paul and wound up with Paul in Ephesus. And we think Sosthenes is the scribe that wrote the actual words on paper of 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul kind of dictated it and Sosthenes wrote it. Okay? But Sosthenes is, is mentioned in both Acts and here. Okay? Other questions? Yes, sir. Yes. There is a book out by Edward Veith, Jean Edward Veith, The Theology of the Cross, that kind of compares 
the theology of the cross with what's happening in our day. And it's very good. It's a very good read, and it's not difficult. Um, it's very good. Okay. Are you ready for the main event? Let's uh, start in verse 1. Paul, called apostle of Jesus Christ through, or Christ Jesus, uh, through the will of God, okay, or by the word of God. And okay, so he's starting by saying... He's not appealing to himself as any kind of authority. The authority that he has comes from God. I am called by God as an apostle through Jesus Christ and the will of God. I did not assume this. I did not take this on myself. The authority is from God. And Sosthenes, uh, it, yours probably says our brother, it's just Sosthenes the brother. Okay. To the church of God being in Corinth, okay, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints to those who are called saints. Now, he's bracketing this. He is a called apostle. They are called saints. They did not become saints on their own. God called them to be saints. God called them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. They're sanctified by him, that is, made holy, that is, forgiven. But notice it says, not only called saints in Corinth, but with all those uh, who have additionally called on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in all places, them and us. Okay. In other words, it's saying we all call on the same Lord. We all call on the same Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. We all call on him. So, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, grace is the highest gift because that's what we have to have. If God does not show us his grace, we have nothing. That is his gift to us. Everything else flows from that. No grace, nothing else. Grace is what God gives us and then from grace can flow peace. If everybody has the grace of God, then there can be 
peace. Okay? Grace and peace. All right. Verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you because the grace of our God was given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to read a couple more verses. That uh, in all things uh, you were enriched in him. And in every word and all knowledge. Just as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now, the reason I wanted to read those three verses is this. Was given, was enriched, was confirmed. Those are aorist passive verbs. And that means nothing to anyone here except to Bud. But the fact is, it's important because it's what somebody else is doing for you. It's passive. It's not, I give, I enrich, I confirm, it's you were given, you were enriched, you were confirmed. Three straight verbs emphasizing this is what God gave you. The work of God is that he gave you grace. The work of God is that you were enriched. The work of God is that you were confirmed. Okay? So that you lack no spiritual gift. So, in other words, God has given to his church what they need to be his church. They are not lacking in the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. They're not lacking anything. They're not without anything. They're not in need. God has given them faith. He's given them grace. He's enriched them in knowledge and in word, the word of God, and he's confirmed it in them. He's confirmed it in them, so they lack nothing. And the word here is longing, as they longingly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they are the church of God lacking no spiritual gifts, anxiously waiting for Jesus to return. Anxiously waiting for Jesus to return. Um, and he confirms you unto the end blameless. 
Okay, now, the he there, they debate whether it's Jesus or God the Father. Does any of your uh, English translations say one or the other, or does it just say he? Or who? Yeah, see, there's a debate, is this Jesus or God the Father? And um, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't lose any sleep over that one. Um, they're, they're both God, and they preserve you blameless. Now, you're blameless not because you haven't sinned. You are blameless because you're washed in the blood of Jesus. All your sins are forgiven. And notice it says he's going to preserve you until the end, until he comes again. Okay? He's going to preserve you blameless. Uh, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, until the day Jesus Christ returns. That's, that's what's being pointed to till the day that Christ returns. And then it says, God is faithful. Uh, and he calls you into the communion of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a statement that begins to emphasize unity. It is the same God who has called you and every other Christian in Corinth, in every place, he has called you to the same communion. Now, let's talk about that word. That word has been debated for years. Many times it's translated to the same fellowship, okay? So many times it's been applied to the fact it only applies to those that believe the same things, okay? And sometimes that goes a little far, the exact same things, okay? Why is it better to translate it communion than fellowship? Here, it's better translated communion because here, major emphasis in this book is going to be Holy Communion in chapter 10 and 11. So here, it's probably better translated communion. And here, it's, it's probably emphasizing communion at the same time table, okay, at the same table, uh, and that would be an emphasis in the rest of the book, and that's why um, it may be better to translate it here, communion, than fellowship. Notice that the basis of the fellowship is not any earthly belief or anything anyone has done. The basis is the communion of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is the center of the communion. No human being or human institution, even the church, is the center of the communion. Christ Jesus is the center of the communion.
Okay? Now that kind of ends his introductory remarks. Okay? That, that kind of ends the... And he always does this, except in one book, that's Galatians. He just lets them have it from the first verse there. But he's usually nice for a little while. And he lets them have it, except in Galatians. But here, and we see it then, immediately he says, I exhort you, brothers, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that you may be of the same all, all saying the same, and in, that there might be no divisions among you. Okay. So he's appealing to them. He's heard from Chloe's people. He'll reference that. He's appealing to them that they all speak the same, probably the same confession. And that there be no divisions among you. There'll be no divisions among you. All right, let me stop and ask for questions. Don't think we're going to start. The next week we get into the divisions. Okay, questions, comments? Yes, sir. What? Well, it's not saying it's Eucharistic in nature. It's probably just saying it's a good way to translate it because there's going to be so much emphasis on communion later. It's a contextual thing. Uh, we, we let the context govern uh, how we translate. Okay? And there's the context of the verse before and the verse after. Then there's the context of the whole chapter. Then the context of the whole book and then the context of the whole scripture, okay? But it, the word is koinonia, and that is many times con, uh, 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 translated fellowship and many times communion. It's one of those words. There, there are those words in the New Testament. Um, the word for, the Greek word for spirit can also be the word for wind. So you have to read the context to know which one it is. Okay. Some of these things are not uh, apparent just at first thought. You got to you got to look at the context. Yeah, but correct. It does point, uh, sharing and in common is going to point to the fact that you have beliefs in common. Remember he said, say, say things the same way, uh, like we say, confess the Apostles' Creed. What we believe and confess on different doctrines, okay, that's our shared common faith. 
And part of that is the sacraments. And so even in the creed, we confess the communion of saints. Okay? Many believe that refers to the sacraments, as well as a common confession. Yes, sir. Well, if you think, if you think that if 1 Corinthians was written in 55 AD, there are some scholars there would say that as yet there are no Gospels on paper. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not on paper, definitely not John. So basically, the reason that Paul always goes to the synagogue is there's one thing in common, the Old Testament. He doesn't pull out Matthew because it doesn't exist. It does not exist yet. Huh? No. Yeah. Yeah, Luke was on the trip. Luke hadn't written anything. Well, you know, ultimately Luke will write Luke and Acts. He wrote both of them. But the fact is, there is not much evidence that there were any of the four Gospels written and being circulated in 55 AD. 55 AD. They were believing the Gospel based on the oral word of the disciples and the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, we just can't fathom this when we live with Xerox machines and faxes and everything's instantaneous. Uh-uh-uh. In that way. Okay, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We'll see you next week.